It's August 20, 2021. This is the Room Now Podcast, and I'm Dr. Jack Cush, Executive Editor of RoomNow.com. You know, I'm a very good driver. You think you're a very good driver. We, we all think we're great drivers, but consider what it's like to drive in pain. Would you be a good driver? Consider what it's like to be in chronic pain, chronic widespread pain. What would be the consequences of that downstream? And lastly, I want you to consider the diagnosis of calcium pyrophosphate deposition disease, CPPD. I'll give you a little bit of info in this podcast that might make you want to consider that a little bit more often. We're going to start out with a study from Scotland where they looked at their military um, graduates, people who were in the military, 78,000 of them, and tried to see if being in the military would lead to maybe a greater risk of hip and knee replacement, meaning that military service would lead to damage to joints that might end up in surgery. So they compared 78,000 people who were in the military to like 250,000 not in the military. And overall, they did not show that military service was associated with a higher risk of joint replacement, hip and knee. They did, in fact, show a slightly lower risk, a 13% lower risk that was significant for hip replacement and really no difference with regards to knee replacement. This is a big issue in the VA and and in the United States where often the question is asked, is your arthritis service connected or not? It's a tough question to answer. I don't know that this data does, but it tells you that being in the military per se is not a de novo cause of osteoarthritis. You know, we do struggle with what to do with our patients when it comes to biologic therapies when they want to get pregnant. Can we use them safely? There's not a lot of data. No one does studies on biologics in pregnancy. Um, A small report, but maybe somewhat encouraging report of belimumab in pregnancy, a study of 13 pregnancies. I believe six of these uh, pregnancies had problems with recurrent fetal loss, but these 13 pregnancies... Um, you know, lupus patients were um, treated with belimumab. The mean age was 38. They had a total of 11 uh, live births. They had one case complication of umphalitis, umphalitis, O-M-P-H-alitis. You know what that is, don't you? I had to look it up. Sorry. Yeah, it's uh, actually infection of the umbilical cord. Quite serious, in fact, because um, if not caught quickly, it can spread to the abdominal wall and fasciitis and rhabdo and all kinds of things. So it really is quite serious. Anyway, this one case uh, quickly resolved with antibiotic therapy. They had no fetal abnormalities. Again, it's a small cohort. The interesting thing was that the six people who had recurrent fe- uh, fetal loss for them had live births uh, on belimumab. So somewhat encouraging. Uh, we need encouragement when it comes to what drugs we could safely use during pregnancy. Um, An interesting cohort analysis of almost 1,700 patients with acute calcium pyrophosphate deposition disease mainly looked at disease associations. So they compared the 1,600, 1,700 patients with 6,500 non-CPPD patients. CPPD, as you would guess, is older, 74 years older. Um, They were mostly white, 81% white. And their disease associations included osteoarthritis, a threefold risk. Rheumatoid arthritis, a two-fold risk. Gout, a, two, a three-fold risk. PPIs, still trying to figure that one out. Why would PPI um, 
has something to do with CPPD. Now, there's some incidents of issues with PPIs and osteoporosis, that PPIs, because of the impair acidity, may impair calcium absorption. I don't get, get the association. What I was surprised at, there was an association of 50% increased risk with diuretic use. Now, you would normally associate that with gout. I wouldn't heretofore have associated that with pseudogout. So, yes, gout can occur, pseudogout can occur in patients with gout, and then maybe a little more likely on those who are on diuretics. The last interesting thing here is that African Americans were 50% less likely to get CPPD compared to whites. I must say, I, I really was not aware of that. So I do think that there's a lot of CPPD out, CPPD out there. I don't think that we often diagnose it because to make the diagnosis, you got to get x-rays, you got to get fluid, you have to suspect it, you have to look for the presentation pattern that would fit. Um, I think a lot of these are missed. Um, should they be treated? There certainly is effective treatment for calcium pyrophosphate deposition disease. Another interesting abstract has to do with driving. Um, and yeah, I'm a good driver, you're a good driver, but are RA patients good drivers? This is a really nice study looking at a small cohort of 33 RA patients compared to 23 controls, and they actually studied their driving habits using an app um, and that detected um, or was an automobile sensor-based instrumentation that could be, I guess, information could be transferred to an app, and you could collect how well people were driving. Acceleration, deceleration, um, uh, steering variability, etc. Well, when they looked at 20, well, 1,200, 1,300 driving hours of RA patients, RA patients actually don't drive as well as controls um, matched for age. Uh, and more importantly, when they had disease activity, pain, inflammation, this was associated with even poorer vehicle control as measured by braking, accelerating, steering, um, and whatnot. You could link all these to the CDI or disease activity measures. So I don't usually ask about driving amongst my patients. I often ask them when they're having problems, have you had problems with falls? I want to know if they're falling and is that a weakness or a pain or a neurological issue? You might be asking your patients how many car accidents have you been in in the last year? You know, you can actually assess driving. There are apps. I got an app on my car um, that senses my driving from my Allstate policy. Um, it's called DriveSafe. And they tell me how good I'm doing, how good I'm not doing. And if I'm doing good, they're going to give me a discount. There are other apps out there. Drive Smart, Lifesaver. There's even an app out there I saw called Drive Mode where... It'll turn off your phone once you get at a speed of greater than 15 miles an hour and send out automated messages like, I'm driving, don't bother me, or I'll call you back. Anyway, there's a lot to be learned, I think, about our patients, um, maybe just from their driving habits. Something to consider. A nice report brought to my attention again by um, uh, Peter Nash um, appears in Journal of Rheumatology. It's uh, um, going to appear, I guess, in the next month's issue, but it's a... A review of psoriatic arthritis patients from um, Toronto and, and um, Daphne Gladman's group, they looked at 402 patients. Nearly a half of them had oligoarticular disease, and they were comparing oligoarticular to polyarticular presentations. What 
was interesting from this is that overall, um, oligoarticular and polyarticular patients behave about the same. Um, now, there is evidence with polyarticular disease of more worse activity like um, hack and other, other measures of, uh, of activity that would go along with polyarticular, but oligoarticular wasn't necessarily benign. In fact, 39% of patients who had an oligoarticular presentation later, present, later progressed to polyarticular disease. They did note, however, that those who had polyarticular disease were a little bit more likely to, in fact, have enthesitis and dactylitis, more so than those with oligoarticular. I think a nice and interesting report. Um, Framingham continues to deliver a study of those individuals within the Framingham cohort looked at 347 patients who had chronic widespread pain. Didn't go into other diagnoses and whatnot and compared it to 2,000 patients who did not have widespread pain. And in this analysis, widespread pain was associated with a future risk, an all-cause increased risk of dementia, a 43% increase. Alzheimer's, 47% increase. Stroke risk, 29% increase. So again, is that fishing for a p-value here and um, you know implausible associations or is there something to be said about chronic central pain um, and what that may do to future CNS risk for CNS disease? I, I, I got to think there might be a connection here. I don't think of my patients who have widespread, chronic widespread pain as having a higher risk of this, but I think this is something that needs to be looked for and or followed over a long period of time. Um, another report surfaces about the use of a JAK inhibitor in patients with COVID. This time it's Jakafee or Ruxolotinib, 16 patients on mechanical ventilation for the SARS-CoV-2 virus, and they also had uh, ARDS and hyperinflammation. They're given ruxolotinib in an open-label study. When they compared those who were on that versus those who were just on standard care, the ones on ruxolotinib did better. 13 out of 16 survived um, at the 28-day point, um, which is their, their primary endpoint. Overall, better um, outcomes were seen with ruxolotinib in those who had a lymphocyte to neutrophil ratio um, of greater than 0.07. I'm not sure that you do that. But we've talked about, you know, um, LNR in the past and other diseases. Also, there's platelet to neutrophil ratio and others that, that may also tell you about inflammation. Uh, a nice meta-analysis looked at colchicine and its um, effect on things that we don't treat. Colchicine, our drug. But you know what's being used in cardiovascular disease with some regularity. It actually does um, significantly reduce the risk of MI. This is the 13 randomized trials, 13,000 patients. It reduced the risk of MI by almost a third. The risk of CVA and T TIA by almost 50%. So there are clear-cut benefits to the chronic use of colchicine in a cardiovascular population, but there is a higher rate of GI toxicity, as you well know. Okay? Ultimately, though, even though it reduces these events, it did not influence all-cause mortality. So is it worth it or not? I think that's up to your cardiologist to decide. So interesting report of tocilizumab in refractory 
difficult scleroderma patients. This is a small cohort study of 21 patients who had refractory skin and joint disease, they had active skin and joint disease, and these people had failed mostly um, methotrexate and some with cytoxin, a few who failed rituximab, leflunomide, hydroxychloroquine, even stem cell transplant. And these patients were given the, uh, um, the IL-6 inhibitor tocilizumab subcutaneously every other week. What's interesting about this is that they did get better and the improvement was as good as long as two years. So 21 patients started, one patient dropped out in three months. The other 20 patients, they all did really well um, with regard to their uh, um, a, a lowering of their skin scores. The modified Rodman skin score decreased by seven points. The DASH 28 decreased by 1.9 and all PROs improved. These, the skin improvements lasted for uh, up to two years in 16 out of the 21 patients. So this isn't notable because as you know, uh, tocilizumab is, is approved for use in patients with um, uh, scleroderma related ILD. Uh, and it's mainly indicated for the um, stabilization and non-worsening of existing lung function. Um, those trials that were done did not show improvement in skin outcomes, um, nor did they show improvement in joint outcomes. So is this a different population? Is this a, um, a little bit of a, a reporting bias here? Anyway, it's something to watch for if you are going to use tocilizumab in your patients. Um, do serial modified Rodman skin scores as an outcome measure and, and prove it to yourself. The big news this week was the uh, approval of the booster um, vaccination shot for the mRNA vaccines. Earlier in the week, the ACR put out its guidance, which was worth reading, um, basically saying that the uh, FDA has extended the EUA, the emergency use authorization for the mRNA vaccines, so that um, individuals over 12 could get the Pfizer vaccine and individuals over 18 could get the um, Moderna vaccine if they are immunosuppressed and if they are on immunosuppressants. That's based on um, data that actually will appear today um, on Room Now. It's from an MMWR showing you that the immunosuppressed don't do as well. There's some reduction with age, but generally most people who were vaccinated you know, eight months ago or more still have good um, antibody titers. So again, they still recommend that the immunosuppressed should get the booster, but they should also continue to practice safe um, practices like wearing the mask, six foot distancing, avoiding crowds and poorly ventilated areas indoors. And yes, if you are immunosuppressed, urge those around you to get vaccinated. So that was earlier in the week. And then um, yesterday, or two days ago, the, uh, there was a joint statement from uh, Health and Human Services, the CDC, and the FDA saying that now we're going to extend the use of a booster shot, again, for Moderna and for uh, Pfizer in, in those age groups, to basically um, anyone starting in September 20th, uh, and those who will be eligible will be those who receive the vaccine um, more than eight months ago. The initial rollout, when you register for this, it'll probably be just like when the drug was first introduced, you know, long-term healthcare facilities, healthcare workers, the elderly will get it first, and then others will get it, will get it thereafter. But you, basically, you need to register where you got your first two shots of the 
um, mRNA vaccines to get your third. Uh, they believe that this is the prudent way to go. Uh, again, the data on on J and J's vaccine is not yet in play. Um, the FDA said they expect that this will also happen for the J and J vaccine, but um, there is no evidence to support that at this point. Um, lastly, I want to talk about just the ULAR um, putting out recommendations for managing difficult RA. Now they call it points to consider in the management of difficult RA. And I think it's worth a look. If you look at that, um, uh, that particular report, I think it's really very telltale. And it really kind of mirrors, I like it a lot because it says a lot of the things I said before in my blog on difficult RA. Basically it says you must meet the definition of difficult RA. That's patients who have failed two or more biologic or targeted synthetic DMARDs um, and after traditional therapy, signs of active progressive disease and patient and doctor both believe that they're not doing very well what they got. They had two overarching principles, 11 recommendations they call points to consider. First overarching principle, make sure you meet the criteria. And second, um, make sure that you know whether inflammation is in play or not because it will color your use of therapy. They really stress things like misdiagnosis as a possibility. They really stress that if you're not sure about inflammation, get an ultrasound. They stress that you should be worried about comorbidities, especially obesity and fibromyalgia, as they will color the outcomes and your choice of therapies. Um, adherence should be discussed with the patient and make that part of shared decision-making. They talk about when to use advanced therapies. That's kind of what you know from other guidelines and whatnot. Uh, and, but that you should clearly be considering other non-pharmacologic interventions like exercise, psychological counseling, educational, and self-management programs. Again, I applaud ULAR for their efforts in this regard. They've done a really good job with their guidelines, as has the ACR. Um, reading these guidelines can give you conviction about what you do. I want to um, thank you for your time. I want you to um, please think about rating us wherever you consume your podcast, whether it's on iTunes or an Apple product or on Google. Um, there's a point in there where you can actually rate us and um, you know, don't give us a bad rating. That's, you know, I, I don't need to be in deep depression. Um, go for five stars, even if they're only offering four stars. Anyway, we'll talk to you next week. Enjoy.